Hello, hello. Hi there. Welcome back. We are the Caught Red Podcast. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are just two dog lovers talking true crime, horror movies, and most likely our dogs too. If you haven't already, go follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We are at Caught Red Podcast. Leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. We'd really appreciate it. It'll help us reach more people. Tell a friend about us. Tell a stranger about us. Hold a sign on the corner of the street. Buy a megaphone. Whatever you got to do, you know. Tell a stranger. They're like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, how was your mother-daughter time with Derby this morning? Always wonderful. She always gets special treatment in this well, house. What? Yeah, of course. That's the love of my life. Y'all took the Jeep out for, yes. this, for a ride? Yes, testing it, making sure it's still all good. I can smell a little bit of burning mm-hmm. up under on the underside, but I still think that's just the undercarriage spray. Uh, he's a trooper. Yeah. He'll be I, fine. The, it doesn't overheat. Nothing else is wrong. No other lights are on the dash, so I'll just... I'll probably drive him up to the restaurant one day that I work this week, and so... Uh, Dad or Scotty can take a whiff as well. Yeah. And look at it because everything else was fine when I went to the mechanics. Well, it was a perfect time to go to the park without the kids there. Oh my gosh. Right? They're yes. all at school today. Yes. You want to tell them what happened the other God day? God bless. So I worked Saturday. I was on my way home. And we live off quite a busy highway. And when I was on my way home, there was this golden retriever that was running alongside the road. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't have that. So I pulled off and I had one last T word in the car. So I got to restock, replenish. And I got her away from the road and she was so sweet and she was playing and running around having a blast. And I was like, "Okay, well, she's off the road, but she had no collar, nothing like that. I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do because I got back in my car and I started kind of pulling away because I like was blocking the road and she started running with the car and I was like, well, gosh, she's going to follow me. So I was like, all right, let me go up this side street here and I could see some homes and I drove up that way and she follows me and I get to the first house and there's a couple older folks outside working in the yard and I was like, does she belong to you? Like, no, but she lives at that corner house down there. I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, the the older woman was like, well, her grandmother's that top house. I'll just text her and let her know that, that she's back out. I'm like, okay. And the doggo was staying in the yard. So I was like, okay, perfect. She'll stay with them. Everything's fine. And then I started driving off and she's like, oh, wait, I'll come with you. And I was like, oh, damn it. So I pulled into the driveway of the house, of her home. And I was looking around to see if I could like figure out how to open her gate because she apparently had dug out. And that's when her grandma pulled up. So I got to learn her name. It's Rue. And she and her daddy. And I think one more dog. It sound like there's another dog barking inside. They live there on the corner. And I mean, she was sweet as can be. I almost just kidnapped her and brought her to our house. But Jesse was like, no, can't do that. Yeah, I left the house with the leash and, and a harness just in case. Yeah, I got her um, with Alicia had in the car, got it looped around her, but trying to get her into the car, cause she was, she wasn't a year old yet, but she was probably at least 80 or so pounds. She was hefty and she was well fed. So I knew she was somebody's dog cause she was well taken care of, but yeah, oh. I almost stole somebody's golden. And then yesterday driving to work, she was out again and I, I text Jesse and I was like, I almost had to turn around, but I was already, you know, I was on my way to work, so I couldn't stop. And then I didn't want muddy paw prints because it was raining here and everything. And I was like, well, damn it. I drove past twice and I didn't see her. Yeah, It was raining and like 40 degrees outside. So hopefully she found some place to Yeah, well, I think her, because the grandma told me that her son was out hunting. So I just assumed he probably came home from whatever trip he was on. Oh. That wasn't even the story I was thinking of, though. I was going to yeah, bring no. up uh, well, so whenever after, you and Derby yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ripley went to the park. I'm getting to that. Oh. I was leading into it. Gosh. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so Saturday, after all that, of course, I smelled like a cheater. 
And then I was like, you know what? I'll just take the girls. We'll go to the park. And you know what? I'll make up for it. So get the girls loaded up. We go to the park. And it's like 4 or 5 in the afternoon, right? It was a little bit later in the day. I pull up to the park. And there's like a playground on one end. And then there's a, a, a lake where you can go fishing. And then on the other side of the lake, there's a, a circular walking path. And I pull up and there's so many cars. I'm like, oh no. But you know what? We're already here. They know where they are. So we got to go. They're pumped. They're so pumped. And so I park. We get out of the car and I see a few kids. And I'm like, that's, you know, no big deal. Then I saw more children and they were riding bikes and running around, which is fine. I mean, it's the park. That's what you're supposed to do. But with the two girls, it was just chaotic. And then I was trying to pick up Pooh. Derby was pulling one way. Ripley pulled the other way and pulled herself out of her harness. And I had to snatch her ass up real quick. And after that, I was like, fuck it. We're going mm, home. Nope. It was too much. Too much going on. So. She's either lost weight or she's Houdini. I don't know. I need to tighten her harness up, I is think. That what it is? But I, I tried... I tried it. It doesn't pull too much more. I don't think she's lost weight, well, though. She does look a little bit slimmer. Well, I've been trying to cut her back a little bit. Because, like, she, when she goes out, when she goes O-U-T, I didn't want to say the O word completely. When she goes O-U-T, she tends to sit on the deck, and the other three will go run around the yard. So she, I mean, she gets exercise. Like, you can go out there with her and play with her, and she'll kind of run around some, but she'd rather just sit and wait on you to come. Yeah. And be with her. She's not as active as the other three. And I took Mowgli to the park last week, too, for some father-son bonding time. Yes. And he's pretty bad on a leash. He'll pull you like crazy. But we need to go out there more often. Well, we don't take the boys as much. Because they're so crazy. And they're... when I'm, And, like, I can take the girls because I can handle them. They're not as big as the boys. So if I could... Figure out, like, I'm going to send back that harness I ordered for Falco and get a smaller size. And it's got a, the ring is in the front of his chest. So it's supposed to help when he pulls. He's supposed to, like, mm -hmm. choke himself out and learn. But we already know that Falco loves to choke himself out. <laughs> but so yeah, we'll see. Me and Mowgli, we walked around that little path. Mm -hmm. So we got to the gated area. But on the way, we walked past this kid who was just sitting on the bench, taking a break from riding his bike. And... As we were approaching, I knew. It was about I to said, happen. I know Mowgli's going to say hi in his wolf language for sure. And sure enough. Woo! Yeah. Woo! Right in the kid's face. He does that. And yeah, that, we're talking about you. Yeah, as he looks up. Uh, but thankfully, it didn't spook the kid. I mean, he was just like, oh, that's a good looking dog you got. I said, oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> and then we, we got into the fenced area and. And Mowgli just, I mean, he was by himself for a while. He still just ran around that whole place. Mm, new Freedom. smells everywhere. It's, 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 I think our yard is even bigger than that little portion at the dog it's park. Close. But it's new smells and a new area. So yeah. we'll have to take the boys back for sure. Yeah. It's nice having a park like what five minutes away mm -hmm. instead of driving all the way to Conway. Yeah. Well, before we get started with our case for today, I also I wanted to give a shout out to Quartzmeyer Music. That's our hey. good friends, Hannah and Dylan. They made our intro music for us, as you might know, and they've got a seven-song album coming out pretty soon. Seven songs. Okay, good. Yes. Yay. And I talked to Dylan last night, and he said they're pretty much done for now. They've That's got exciting. a few final touches they got to make for one more song they they're using a new producer out in Bryant. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be available on all streaming platforms. They're called Quartzmeyer Music. That's K-O-R-D-S-M-E-I-E-R. -E so give them a follow if you like good small town country music. Yes. I can't wait to hear what they've created. All their music in the past has been so good. So And they do a lot of covers when we go watch them perform at a bar and stuff. They're really good. Oh, yeah. Really good. Well, with that being said, Megan has an interesting case for us today. You ready to do this thing? Let's do it. All right. My sources are going to be derangedlacrimes.com, scocal.stanford.edu, the case of People versus Duncan, 
LA Magazine, a podcast called Mother Knows Best. The uh, podcast is called They Walk Among America, uh, a book called A Lovely Girl by Deborah Holt Larkin, Pottstown.org, Murderpedia, of course, LA Times, and then the State Bar of California's member page. How far did you get into that book? Uh, reading it. So the book, the book, A Lovely Girl, the author's father, when she was younger, she was like between eight and 10. I can't quite remember. Her father covered the case that I'm going to talk about. So she was able to use her memories and then go through his notes and everything. And then, of course, her own research and, and wrote the book. So half the book, like a, a chapter will be about her life, like what's going on the same kind of days. And then like the next chapter would be something about the case. So it kind of flip flopped it. So I I more or less flipped and scrolled through the mm-hmm. book. I didn't really deep read it, but I would kind of just open up and kind of look and see what information was in there gotcha so i haven't read it read it but i want to go through the whole thing gotcha with that being said how many out there have seen the water boy i have i know you have we love that movie so it's it's adam sandler he plays bobby boucher i know when i think about it i can't help but picture kathy bates as mama Foosballs for the devil. I was literally about to say, we (laughs) quote that movie so often. Like, we love Adam Sandler in this house. And yeah, he's had some movies that, like, weren't winners in the past. But, like, fuck it. Who cares? So, Kathy Bates' character, Mama, is overprotective, overinvolved. She's the definition of, like, a helicopter mom. If Mama said jump, he'd say how high. If Mama calls someone the devil, I mean, that was the truth in his eyes. That's all he knew. So, she could do no wrong... You know who else it reminds me of? Huh? The mom in in the It movie, the 2017 one. Oh, yeah. Never lets her kid go out and like giving him all his medicine and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good comparison. Just thought of that now. I like that. Anyway. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. So Mama could do no wrong until Bobby started gaining some independence. When she saw that she was starting to lose him, she resorted to some desperate measures to keep him close. But in the end, she let her baby go and let him be happy choosing the life he wanted with who he wanted, with Vicky Valancourt. Yeah. If only this is how it went every time. For today's episode, I'm going to tell you all about how a mother's obsession with her son led to the death of her pregnant daughter-in-law. Here we go. Here we go. Let me introduce Elizabeth Ann Duncan, a.k.a. Ma Duncan. I'm going to call her Ma majority of the time in the story. Okay. She was born as Hazel Lucille Sinclara Nye on April 16th, 1904 in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, we're going way back. A little bit. Ma was one of those women who just never seemed satisfied or happy. She had anywhere between 10 and 20 Failed marriages. Jesus, no one to quit. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a revolving door of men marrying one before divorcing another or just getting it annulled. She would lie to these men with the promises of money. She would tell them that in order to gain her inheritance, she would need to wed. But while waiting for the funds to come through, she would just live off their money and resources until she moved on to the next. She was a liar and a very good one. She would get arrested for petty crimes like writing bad checks. Some sources also said that she ran a brothel. But there was never any worry because her son Frank was always there for her. In her eyes, he was the only man she could rely on. Plus, it helped that he was an attorney and got her out of everything. Uh, It was said like that brothel that she supposedly run under a different name, by the way. It was a way for her to pay for his college and then go to law school. Ah, where was this at? California? Well, it, it will take place in California, okay. yes. Um, it never said where like the brothel and stuff was, but the majority of the story, yes, is in California. Okay. Frank was more or less the love of her life. She had other children. I read between four and six, including a daughter, Patricia, who had suddenly died at the age of 16 from a subdermal hematoma. He and his mother, they shared an apartment together on and off, which made her happy. She was able to keep him close and keep an eye on him. 
Frank, who seemed fine with these arrangements for the most part, did seem to get a little fed up with his mother's shenanigans. After yet another one of her failed marriages, she had moved back in with Frank. It was in November of 1957 when he decided to pull away just a little bit and gain back some of his independence. He was a grown man, and he had reached a point that he wanted to either move out on his own or move her back out, which is which is understandable because he was 29 at the time. But how did Ma react? By overdosing on sleeping pills. This was her way to bring him back to her, and it worked. She ended up going to the St. Francis Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara, California, where they pumped her stomach and she was put into recovery. When questioned why this happened, Ma told her doctor that she was afraid of losing Frank, that Frank was going to leave her. Luckily for her, the argument between them over him being tired of the shenanigans, moving out, blah, 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 it was long forgotten. She was able to guilt him into staying by her side right where she wanted him, and Frank would spend all of his extra time visiting his mother in the hospital. But something that wasn't part of her plan happened. A sort of monkey wrench that was thrown into the mix. While Ma was recovering, there was one particular nurse taking care of her. Her name was Olga Kupchak. And Not Vicky Valancourt? No, no, no. <laughs> she was a red-headed 29-year-old, and she was from Canada. Olga had only recently moved to the States in January of the year, 1957, from Vancouver. She caught Frank's eye, and he was smitten with her. She was very pretty, and she treated his mother very wonderfully. He may have kept going to see his mother, but seeing Olga was like a cherry on top. But Ma, she was no fool. She could see this budding relationship, and she would do anything to keep Frank. Anything. It was no surprise when the two began dating that Ma was not having it. Ma used to call Olga every day at work and home and tell her to leave Frankie alone. Dang. She would threaten Olga on these calls. And this was Frank's first, like, real relationship, the first time to uh, go steady, as they would say back in the day. Of course, it was a shock to his mother that, that he would possibly ever want to connect with someone else. When Frank told his mother that he was getting serious about her, Ma told him she didn't want him to get married. It would seem as though Ma was against Frank ever being with anybody else. And what made matters worse was that she saw Olga as a foreigner and that she was unfit for her son. Because she was from Canada? Yes. Come on. Yes, that's why she was a foreigner. <clears throat> Olga told her friends about Ma and her calls and her controlling demeanor. Growing tired of Ma's threats, she finally told her that she was going to marry Frank. And can you guess what uh, Ma's response was? You won't marry Frank. I'll kill you first. Well, damn. Right? Straight to the point. Mm -hmm. Because they both knew how Frank's mother was and how she would most likely take the news, the two lovebirds decided to marry in secret on June 20th, 1958. What Mama don't know won't hurt her. Yes. A major reason behind the marriage was the fact that Olga had already gotten pregnant, and she and Frank thought it was the right thing to do. Once they had wed, they asked for the Santa Barbara County clerk to not put the announcement in the paper. Frank needed to tell his mom first, but unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Mama knows. Mama learns, yes. <laughs> One evening, Frank wasn't home, so in order to find him, Ma called the hospital to speak with Olga, but she too was gone. And one of her co-workers had said, oh, well, she's not here. It's, it's her wedding night. It was only a couple months later and Ma was back at it. She was trying to come up with a way to get rid of Olga. In early August of 1958, so just a couple months after she and Frankie had wed in secret, she has this bright idea of having her son's marriage to Olga annulled. She was a professional in this field by this point in her life. I'd said earlier she was married up to like 20 times, and so many of those were annulled. One of her marriages was actually annulled like an hour after she said I do. What? I, I know. I know. This woman is wild. She recruits an ex-con by the name of Ralph Winterstein or Winterstein. I'm not quite sure. It's either way. He's going to play the part of Frank, and she would act as Olga. 
The plan was to present themselves to the court and Ralph, a.k.a. Frank, would tell the courts that he and Ma, a.k.a. Olga, were no longer living together and they had no intentions of doing so. The annulment was granted. At the time, you didn't need an identification. Oh, my gosh. Right? And Ma was smart. She took herself and Ralph to Ventura County to have the annulment because if they stayed in Santa Barbara, majority of the workers in the courthouse would know that Ralph is not Frank. So she she did good on that one. Oh, because he's the lawyer? Mm-hmm. And everybody they would recognize him. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. So Frank and Olga will have no idea that their marriage was legally over. Since Ralph had helped Ma with this, she decided she's going to recruit him to help her out again, but this time to kill Olga. Oh, my God. Instead of being the one that goes to him directly, she has one of her friends, Emma Short, go ask Ralph to see if he would take care of Olga. Well, he refuses. And then later he'll testify that he should have gone to the, to the police but he was worried that it meant that he would have to admit to fraud charges because of the annulment. Frank would let her testify that he felt like a yo-yo, bouncing back and forth between the women. See, Frank was living with his bride and his mother would just show up unannounced and wouldn't leave until he agreed to go back to their apartment that they once shared. Psycho. Right. It's getting to the point that it was becoming a ridiculous situation that Frank and Olga went out and they found a new apartment and they don't tell his mother the address. Ma, even more furious now, was adamant to ruin the couple. One afternoon, while she was with one of her friends, Barbara Reed, Ma tells her that Olga wasn't even carrying Frank's child and she was claiming it was Frank's to trap him. And then what's even crazier is that she asked her friend... That if she paid her $1,500, would she kill Olga for her? And Barbara Reed, the friend, is like, what? So she goes straight to Frank and tells him the conversation that he had with his mother. So to keep things remotely pleasant between the couple and Ma, Frank decided to move back in with his mother. Just go far, far away, man. She's no good for you. (laughs) Frank said that he would just go back and forth between the two residents and this this would work. Only Ma didn't like that arrangement. She wanted Olga gone completely from his life. Ma was able to find out the couple's new address. I could never figure out how. And she was able to convince uh, Olga's apartment manager to let her inside. Being convincing and very manipulative is just part of her key traits right there. Once Ma was inside, she snooped around, looked for some things that were Frank's, like clothing and toiletries, you know, etc., all that. I don't know if the manager of the apartment was aware of what was going on at that time, but she either overheard or Ma said it to her. But Ma goes, she's not going to have him. I will kill her if it's the last thing I do. She said that to the manager? Either said it to the manager or was close enough, like talking he, to herself, that the manager overheard her right. say that. She was probably talking to herself. Oh, she's crazy. She had to have mm-hmm. been. Frank, in case you're wondering, is a criminal defense attorney. I say was because according to the State Bar of California, he is currently ineligible to practice law in the state of California. Apparently, he has a lot of disciplinary charges in his past. Hmm. I looked him up because I was like, I wonder if he's still practicing. And then I saw that his law office was closed and there was a link. And I was like, oh, click. And I said, oh, they took his license away. Interesting. I wonder what he did. Anyways, when Ralph didn't want any part in this murder, Ma just simply reached out to some of the men that her son had represented. Ma went to another friend, Diane Romero, because she knew Diane's husband, Rudolph, was one of Frank's previous clients. Ma told Rudolph that Frank was being blackmailed by Olga and that she needed to get rid of the new mom-to-be. Ma offered them money, so Diane decided to go to Olga's apartment and check things out. That's when she saw who Olga was. Diane recognized her as Ma's nurse from the hospital, the one who had cared for her and helped Ma recover. Diane goes right to her husband, and the two of them decide to turn down Ma's proposal and money. So they have hearts. When this plan went sour, Ma went to Rebecca Diaz, who was said to be a roommate of the Romeros. 
Obviously, the Romeros, Diane and, and Rudolph, uh, didn't tell Rebecca what was going on because Ma was able to convince her that Olga was threatening her, being Ma, and was wanting money. So she asked Rebecca if she knew anyone that could get rid of Olga, and she did. <laughs> All these people know right. who a hitman is? I know, crazy. I know. It took a few weeks, but finally, one afternoon, Ma and her friend Emma Short, from earlier in the story, they go to the restaurant called the Tropical Cafe. And it's owned by a woman named Esperanza Esquivel. No big surprise here. Esperanza's husband was also a previous client of Frank's. And Ma, ha, she knew who he was. Because Ma, miss, Ma is so obsessed with her son and hated being alone, she used to go and hang out at the courthouse while Frank would work. She sat in a lot of his trials. So she had been a witness to this particular client's case. Frank had gotten all his charges of receiving stolen property dismissed. Ma knew that Esperanza and her husband were very thankful for Frank's help, and she knew she could sweet-talking them into helping her. Ma did what she does best, and she lied to the couple. She told them that Olga was blackmailing Frank and threatened to throw acid in his face. Jesus. Keep the acid thing in mind, okay? Okay. Esperanza told Ma that she knew of two men that could help but didn't think they would want to directly communicate with her. So Esperanza became like the middle man, well, middle woman. Then Ma and Emma Short left the restaurant only to return the next day when Esperanza called Ma to say that she'd found those two men and that they had spoken with her. These two men are 21-year-old Louise Moya and 26-year-old Augustine, a.k.a. Gus Baldonado. They met with Ma, and after hearing her pleas, they decided they'll help her. Louise, he is the one out of the two that I found more about. He was a career criminal, in and out of prison. His first bid was like at 11 years old in juvie. He was into drugs, and among all of his charges, there is one previous charge of assault with a deadly weapon. And he tried to escape prison on more than one attempt. Bad boy. Mm-hmm. As Ma sat with these two strangers, they talked over their terms. Ma wanted this to be done within the next few months. They decided on a total of $6,000. The men would receive half when the job was done, and then over the following months, they'll get the remainder like in payments. She probably didn't even have $6,000. Moya and Baldonado needed some funds up front for supplies and transportation. They had figured that they would kidnap Olga, take her to Tijuana, and kill her there. Damn. Right. Ma went and pawned some jewelry. She was able to get $175 for the men to go towards a car, weapons, gloves, etc. $170-something up front? That's not going to be enough, is it? No. And then, and it really wasn't much, but that's all she could do at the time. She lied to these men and said that she had paid somebody else $1,000 already to do the same job, and it didn't get done. So Moya is like, oh, don't worry. We got this. So when it was time, Moya and Baldonado borrowed a pistol from a friend. They rented a car out and then used the rest of the money on ammo and gloves and tape. On the evening of November 17th, 1958, oddly enough, which is almost a year to the date of Maul going to the hospital and Frank meeting Olga for the first time, Moya and Baldonado go to Olga's apartment. Olga had just finished having a girls' night, having snacks, gossiping, showing off the new gown that she'd been embroidering for the baby. Her co-workers left about 11 p.m. or so. Olga is getting ready for bed when she hears the doorbell. She pulls on her robe, gets her slippers, and she goes to see who it could possibly be. It was Moya. He was at the door, and he claimed that he met Frank at a bar and Frank was drunk. He needed help to get him out of the car and inside the apartment. And the last time Olga had seen her husband was about 10 days prior when he packed up and moved back in with his mom. Only it wasn't Frank that was in the car. It was Baldonado hiding in the dark back seat. Olga leans in to get a better look and Moya hits her with the pistol, knocking her out. Baldonado pulled her in and off they went. They weren't on the road for very long when the men felt like the car wasn't going to make it to Tijuana, so they changed their plan. Instead, they headed south on Highway 101 towards Ventura County, so leaving Santa Barbara. It was late into the night, so it was quiet and dark, and they were all alone. And she's still pregnant at this time? Yes. Yeah. She's about seven months. Dang. 
The men get Olga out of the car, and again, they must change their plan. When Olga was struck with the pistol, it caused the handle to crack and break off, so they decided that strangulation was the way to go. The men had to take turns, too. With manual strangulation, the victim can lose consciousness by the carotid arteries being blocked, the jugular veins being blocked, and then, of course, the airway being closed off. It doesn't take much pressure on those arteries or veins. It can take about 10 seconds for the uh, effect of unconsciousness to occur. However, when pressure is released, the victim can regain their consciousness in about that same 10-second span. Typically, to close the airway, aka your trachea, it takes about three times as much pressure, so at minimum of 33 pounds pressing against you. If it's uninterrupted, brain death can occur within four to five minutes. I don't know how long it took her to pass. And Baldonado was said to once have been a medic in the army, so he was fairly certain when he couldn't find a pulse that they had done it and she was no longer with them. And Baldonado Moya obviously weren't the brightest or the best hitman that money could buy. And I say this because the two of them never thought to bring shovels. Whether the murder had happened in Tijuana or not, like what were they going to do with the body? Right. So they end up using their hands to dig a very shallow grave and place the very pregnant, like I said, seven months of the time, Olga into it. Her disappearance was quickly noted. She was a prompt employee, and when she failed to call or show for her next shift, a friend and co-worker of hers goes to the apartment, and the first thing she sees is that the front door is open. After she enters, she sees that all the lights were on and that Olga's bed looked like she had drawn the sheets back but never been slept in. The apartment manager knew this wasn't like Olga either because she would go to tell the police that Olga never left her windows or her doors unlocked because she feared her mother-in-law. The manager had also heard Maul say if she killed her, it'd be the last thing she ever did on a prior interaction. So that one day earlier. How crazy is it that hmm. that he had that she hadn't seen her Frank in 10 days? She's seven months pregnant and he's just over there staying with his mom. Like, come I know. on. I know. Ma had also mentioned that Olga and Frank were living in sin because their marriage had been annulled. And uh, she said that in front of the manager, too. And when the manager didn't believe her, again, she knew Olga better than that and knew that if living in sin was frowned upon those days, Olga wouldn't be that person. So the manager was like, what? And Ma goes, well, you can check with Ventura County. Like, just leaves it like that. The police hear this and they check for the missing persons report and they see that a Hal Hammonds, an attorney, had drawn these annulment papers up. Hammonds, not thinking too much about it, just did it as a favor for a fellow lawyer. Because remember, it was had Frank's name on it. He's like, oh, I bet he just needs help. So he does this paperwork for him. But then he starts to question things. He hands over the information to an investigator. And it was said then that the annulment was declared a fraud. And Ma was caught. For that, at least. Good. Goodness. She was arrested on charges of bribing a witness to influence testimony, falsifying legal paperwork, forgery with the intent to defraud, and forcing Ralph, the you know man that came with her, to make false statements under oath. But don't worry. She proudly enters the courtroom with her son, Frank, walking hand in hand. He was going to represent her. What? Yes. Bro, you're... <laughs> Lost your mind, too. The DA attempted to keep her bail as it was, but Frank got it reduced. Either way, him and his mom, neither one of them could afford it still. For being known as, like, such a good attorney, Frank was a moron. Or just completely delusional and in denial. He refused to believe that his mother had any involvement in Olga and his unborn child's disappearance. He was quoted saying that she said she knew nothing about it. I know her and she wouldn't lie. He also couldn't understand why his mother would fake this annulment and he didn't want to talk about it. Unknown to Ma, though, about at the same time that she was arrested on those fraud, char on those fraud charges, Moya and Baldonado were also arrested. 
at the time, the police wouldn't acknowledge the fact that the men were involved with the disappearance, but the papers kind of did that for them. They posted their pictures and then there'd be like captions underneath the pictures being like, being held for questioning and missing woman's investigation. Suspicion was placed on Moya and Baldonado when they returned the car. The back seat covers were missing, and they told the owners that they had burned it with a cigarette and threw it away, and they, they were willing to pay for the cost to fix it. But I assume that the owner probably found blood because those men weren't the brightest and probably didn't clean it as well as they thought they did. Probably. It never said that anywhere, but that's what I figure happened was they was probably like, what? That's weird. Mm-hmm. And this happened when the women went, the woman went missing. So. What a coincidence. Right. On December 19th, 1958, just a month or so after Olga was taken, Elizabeth Ann, a.k.a. Ma Duncan, was formally accused of hiring Louis Moya and Gus Baldonado to murder her daughter-in-law. The three of them were charged with con- with conspiracy to murder. Bell was sat at $100,000, which is more than a million today. The police decided to go public in order to gain help to find Olga's body. They presumed her and the baby to already be dead, even though Frank said to the reporters that if Olga came home, he would move back in with her, like Mr. Denial over here. But the police didn't have to wait for the tips to roll in. Gus Balinato confessed, and implicated Moya and Ma as being involved. Baldonado also led them to Olga's body on December 21st, so just a couple days later. I thought you said something about acid. I'm getting to that. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It'll come up in just a few minutes. Moya also confessed to doing his part, but Ma refuses. She would never admit that she was guilty. It didn't matter, though, because more and more information was coming to light against Ma. I don't think you can lie your way out of this one. No. Several witnesses testified before the grand jury, and in total, Ma had asked about four people to help to go through with this murder plot. Yeah, she couldn't do it herself, so she had to have a million Mm -hmm. other people try. Yeah. One witness, Barbara Reed, the one that she had first gone to, says she'd pay her $1,500, She testified that Ma had this plan, that she wanted Barbara to go to Olga's apartment and throw acid in her face instead of the other way around, that Olga was supposed to throw acid in Frank's face. So she's, like, obsessed with this acid thing. Yeah. And after Barbara throws the acid in Olga's face, Ma would be behind Barbara with the blanket and throw it over Olga and drag her to a car, then drive that car up a mountain and push it with Olga inside off a cliff. What an elaborate plan you got there, I know. Ma. That's why Barbara's like, oh, let me think about it. And then she went to Frank and told Frank what his mother is doing good, in her mind. Good for her. And then Frank just tells Barbara, I'll do what I can. Because she's like, you need to get Olga out of town. Of course, nothing came with that. When, no, he just decided to stay with Ma. Like, yeah. how strange, man. When Barbara didn't go along with that plan... Ma goes to her friend, Emma Short, who's the next witness, and Emma's testimony is just as disturbing. Emma said that Ma wanted her to find a way to have Olga come to her apartment and have her sit in this chair that she has by a closet. And then Ma would be in that closet hiding, waiting with a rope to tie it around Olga's neck and then throw poison in her eyes. Goodness. She's got too much time on her hands thinking of all these murderous acts. Now... Emma didn't go to Frank and tell him what his mother said. She said that she didn't know him well enough or was comfortable enough to approach him. Next was Diane and then, of course, her husband, Rudolph, who was the former client. She testified that Ma was going to give her $5 to buy some lye so that she could put Olga in a bathtub and then add water and the lye to make her unrecognizable by dissolving her. Jesus. When Diane and her husband refused to take any part, Ma kept raising the price, saying that she could pay them up to $2,000 to get rid of Olga. And then, of course, we know she next approached Esperanza and then was introduced to Moya and Baldonado from that point. And as a side note here, she did create a backup plan just in case she couldn't find anybody to hire. She was just going to cause like an infidelity issue in the marriage She goes to a doctor's office and sees this very attractive young um, office manager and was trying to get the office manager to go out with her son. So that one involved no murder. 
Now, when Frank takes the stand, it just, it made me mad the more I read about him. His testimony before the grand jury just made him look oblivious and just like dumb. He knew his mother didn't want him to marry Olga or really probably ever in his life. And he could never really recall his mother having objections when he was dating Olga, though. You think it was just Olga or was it just anybody he would have ended it, up I'm dating? I'm sure it was anybody. Yeah. He told the grand jury about his living arrangements part-time with each woman. He said he did his best to let his mother know that this arrangement was fine for the time being, but when the baby came, he was going to move back in with Olga. So he was trying to stand up to her. He tells the grand jury that the last time he saw Olga was on November 7th, which also happened to be his 30th birthday. The last words that Olga said to him were, Frank, when are you going to come back? Because that's the day he moved out. Yeah. Countless witnesses testified before the grand jury. And after they were all done, it took about 15 minutes for the grand jury to decide that they needed to go to trial. Ma... Louise Moya and Gus Baldonado were all formally indicted on charges of kidnapping and first-degree murder. It was around January 30, 1959, when Ma, Moya, and Baldonado all decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. They were all interviewed and found sane. In order to begin, the jury had to be chosen— And this proved to be very difficult because this case was on the front page like every day. Everyone knew the case. The court needed to find some sort of impartial and unbiased jury. Many that were called to jury duty had already made up their minds. Everyone said guilty across the board. Ma and Frank got hate mail every day. And when the jury was finally chosen, which this is kind of crazy to me, it was eight women and four men. Because I feel like men would be more unbiased. These 12 individuals now had to sit through those same testimonies that were in the grand jury. When Louise Moya took the stand, he had no problem throwing Ma under the bus. He said that Ma informed him that she had acid, rope, and sleeping pills if he and Baldonado wanted to use them. She said that they could use those pills to give her an overdose, kind of like what she did to herself the rope to tie her, and then acid to disfigure her face and her fingerprints. Yeah, he's got no reason to, like, cover up for her or anything. Right. Barely knows her. Moya and Baldonado even took some of Olga's clothing to make it look like she went on some sort of trip out of town. Moya then told the courts the events that happened on November 17th. Olga has sustained an additional blow after that first time that Moya hit her, Baldonado had struck her again while they were driving because she had woken up and started screaming. So that's what caused the handle of the gun to break. Mm. Baldonado also had her hands tied together with the tape they brought. He proceeded to talk about the change of plans and how they took turns strangling her when the gun broke. And then they also used a rock to hit her again. When Baldonado took the stand, he wasn't as forthcoming and said, I don't know a lot which I found odd because he's the one that was spilling his guts in the sta- at the station and led them to the body. But on the stand, he was like, I don't know. That is weird. That, it doesn't make sense. And I don't know if it was while the three of them were in custody or at the trial, but according to the medical examiner, Olga did not die from the strangulation. The M.E. found dirt in her mouth and lungs and concluded that she died from suffocation from being buried alive. Jeez. Yeah. So that's two of the in a row that I've done that have involved that. Sorry, guys. Really? My bad. When Ma was on the stand, she told the court that she thought originally that she was going to bring Frankie into the apartment and kind of keep him like a hostage that if he was away from Olga long enough, he would just stop thinking about her and return to his mother permanently. She was under oath and still denying the fact that she ever intended on harming Olga. And the prosecution had 44 and I read up to like 60 witnesses. And yet she dismissed any knowledge of the crime. This, like this woman, I swear, Frank must have inherited his delusional thinking and like his denial from her. But, I mean, she was a pathological liar and she's very manipulative. 
When she was asked about her relationship with her son, she said it was nothing more than love and devotion. Up to now, I know everyone, including myself, is like, what is going on between these two, right? Because it's a little... A little weird. Excessive. Emma Short, one of Ma's friends, when she was on the stand, said that she often heard Frank call his mother doll, and he told her several times that he would never leave her. They never proved that there was any incest, but when Frank was sleeping, on occasion, his mom would just point to him and go, oh, isn't he beautiful? She liked to talk about her son, and while she was being assessed, the psychiatrist concluded that she was in love with him. And despite all this, Frank had a normal interest in women. We all know he was interested in Olga, but... Frank admitted on the stand that even though he was married to Olga, he had taken a business trip to San Francisco where he went on a date with another woman, never told the woman he was married or that his wife was at home pregnant. And it just goes to, I mean, they weren't even married like six months and he's cheating on her. So whatever. And while the trial was going on, Frank had secretly gotten married again. And when this came out, In the court, his mother stood up and yelled, Son of a bitch! Oh my God. (laughs) On March 16th, 1959, Elizabeth Ann Duncan was found guilty and given the death penalty. Louise Moya and Gus Baldonado were also found guilty at their own trials and given the death penalty. That surprises me that he got married again like that. In secret. In secret again. Again. Yeah. Especially how obsessed he is with his mom. Yeah. Frank did continue to fight for his mother. When she was put to death on August 8th, 1962, he was at the federal courthouse pleading for a stay of execution, which meant he was not there at the time of her death. He didn't represent her in the murder trial, No, she had her own lawyer. Ma's last words were have said to have been, Where's Frank? I want to see my son. Elizabeth Ann Duncan was the last of four women to be put to death by gas chamber in California. And just to give you an idea how rare that was at the time, there were almost 200 men killed this way. Olga had just fallen in love with the wrong man. A man who the district attorney in his closing argument called a mouse. Not a man, he was a spineless jellyfish. Olga had a monster-in-law, not a (laughs) mother-in-law. Yeah. Elizabeth Ann Duncan had been cold-hearted from the beginning of her life. She never truly loved any of the men she married. She really admits to the other children that she had besides Frank and Patricia, the one who passed away. She was cruel and saw nothing wrong with using others for her own gain. It seemed as though she lied more than anything else and makes you wonder if she ever spoke a word of truth. Now, the podcast I was listening to said that when the trial was beginning, it was quite the spectacle. It was the biggest thing to happen in that safe and quiet little, like the little communities of Santa Barbara and Ventura. Residents were there before dawn trying to get a seat in the courtroom. They were selling spots in line as well as hamburgers and hot dogs. That's wild. What? Olga was said to have a daughter, and they were cremated. Her parents, who came down from Manitoba up in Canada, they had come down initially when she went missing, obviously, to help find her. They stayed throughout the trial, and then uh, her parents and her closest friends from the hospital attended the service. Frank, however, did not attend the service because he was too busy being at his mother's side at her trial. And that is the story of one crazy mother who would never give up her son for better or worse. Wasn't even at her funeral, really? No. He was with his mother. What a loser. I know. I'm glad that your mom... Olga was too good for him. And my mom are (laughs) not like... Watch out for those crazy mother-in-laws, guys. Right? Jesus. So there was a question that was brought up. Do you think Frank knew his mother orchestrated the murder of his wife and child? Do you think he ever cared about Olga? No. No, me either. No, because he already was getting married to another lady. I didn't even go to the service. Yeah, he didn't care. Piece of shit. Piece of fucking shit. And Olga, I mean, honestly, she didn't even really need Frank. Like, if 
if Ma had just let it be once they separated, she already got him annulled, so they weren't even married. So if she just let it be, I mean, Olga was very capable. She already had her own job in place. She was a nurse. She could take care of herself. She had a good support system from her, her family and her friends. She didn't need Frank. Her mom could have just left it alone, let it be, and they would have both been alive and lived their whole life. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, but she was just determined that this girl had to leave completely from the world. That shit crazy. Yes. Wow. And because we always have to throw criminal minds into the mix. Oh, yeah. There, and, and it's so crazy that I had started looking stuff up for this case and that episode came on. But it's season 11, episode 13. It's called The Bond. Any of my ladies out there watched Heart of Dixie. The guy who plays Wade on that show is in this episode of Criminal Minds. I don't really pay too much, too much attention. But it pretty much was like the mall was killing these men and the son was taking over the ways that she killed them and was killing new people that way. Yeah, yeah, because she yeah. was in prison. Yeah, and he'd go and visit her and, you know, was devoted to his mother just like Frank was to Ma. And she was so proud of what he was doing out yeah, there. Yeah, he was showing pictures. and be like, look, Mom, I killed this person just the way you did. Oh, honey, I'm so proud. Do you have the quote from that sh that episode? No, I'd have to look it up. Mm. But yeah, that's a uh, that's the deranged mother-in-law Elizabeth Ann Duncan. Whew, that's a wild one. You're welcome. Good job. All right, well we'll be back next week for another episode. Jesse's turn. Yes. Kind of got an idea of which one I'm gonna do. Branch out a little bit. Well, until then. Stay local. Shop local. Murder local. <laughs>